This podcast was recorded during the great coronavirus COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here for all that? No way. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of the do what you want to do. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello there, and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a podcast hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our great musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Now, there are many... Beatles Appreciation Podcasts out there, and there are some great ones. And a very good one is called I Am the Egg Pod with the host Chris Shaw. And I owe a tip of the cap to that podcast. It inspired me to do this one. Uh, Chris is based in the UK, and as a result, his podcast features mostly British writers and musicians. And when I listened to it, I thought, you know what? I would love to do one except with Canadian music people. So here we are. My guest today is one of the most creative Canadian music people out there, Dave Bedini. The band that he founded in 1979, The Rio Statics, has a body of work that features so many different musical textures. Dave is also a writer uh, and, like me, has a foot in two worlds. He's written a lot about sports. Uh, And he's also written about music, and he's a professional musician. So there's a bit of a difference. I have a foot in both worlds, but I just love music. Dave actually loves it and can play it for a living. So a bit of a difference there. He has written loads of newspaper pieces as well, and most recently he's made the cavalier move of starting a local print newspaper, the West End Phoenix, in an era that has not been very kind to hard copy print publications. So he's quite an entrepreneur. He's a force of nature. That's how many of his friends describe him. And for our conversation, he was absolutely insistent that he be able to walk around the West End Toronto neighborhood he calls home while we spoke, maybe to help the creative conversational juices flow. So he's on his cell phone, and you'll hear cars, people, birdsong, and also some great thoughts on the Beatles and their music. Dave Bedini, music fan. Hey, uh, I was wondering when someone was going to ask me to go on a podcast to talk about the Beatles, and here you are. <laughs> My pleasure. Here at uh, Answering Your Prayers. Uh, so so what, are, uh, what are your first memories of the Beatles? Well, first memories are the blue and red records, I think. You know, the collections, um, which, you know, growing up in Etobicoke, in the seventies, um, kind of, it was one of those, you know, every, every household had a, you know, pressure cooker and a, and a Beatles greatest hits record, you know, um, it was just part of the wallpaper of life, you know, popular culture at that time. And, 
Then probably the cartoon a little bit as well. I think, I mean, born, I was born in 63. So, uh, and I do remember, you know, what profound memory for me is um, my cousins who were older than me, they would have been um, late teenagers, um, you know, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and the breakup, right? And how, and I write about this in Keon and me actually, just witnessing my um, older uh, uh, teenage cousin, Joanne, how ripped up she was when, um, I, I guess it was she read the liner notes of Paul's record when he talked about talked about the Beatles' mortality and then the official um, announcement and, and how that really kind of tore, tore a hole apart in, in their lives. So, so you know, the, I think that the, that was when the gravity of the band uh, sort of struck me that this was more than, you know, Lady Madonna, oh, bloody, oh, bloody, I want to hold your hand, the Beatles cartoon in the morning. This was about something that could really deeply affect somebody's life. So those are probably my earliest memories of the band and, 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 uh, and the way they resonated, you know, uh, at all levels uh, as a kid growing up. It's funny. I mean, you and I are about the same age. I'm a couple of years older than you are, but we, we, didn't experience the Beatles in in real time. Like I, I can remember the, the the only album I actually remember coming out, and I got it for my tenth birthday was Let It Be, and because it, it, it had the big uh, when it came out, big box set with a book and everything, and I remember that. But it, it it's it's kind of weird. We didn't live them in real time, so it, it, it's it's sort of strange discovering them kind of post breakup, if you know what I mean. And I think in a weird way, that that's sort of the gift that keeps giving. Uh, uh, from the band to subsequent generations who, uh, you know, there's, geez, there's, there's, there's such a, a long, dark, well, really psychedelic tunnel to, to, to wander into, uh, in terms of, in terms of their past and how, you know, their emergence and, and I'm a, you know, a fiend for, even the lamest Netflix doc that comes out about, you know, their, their origin, their existence and stuff. You just kind of gobble that, that stuff like cheap candy, because just, you know, the, the essence of it is, is completely singular, fascinating, important. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that, that, that deep, deep sense of history is unlike any other band and maybe in any other artistic thing of the 20th century. And that's, there, there, there are subsequent generations that will continue to kind of die and dine out on that and dig into it, um, no matter how uh, far in the rearview mirror that that band exists. Well, and, and I can't imagine, to your point, that there's a more well-documented group of musicians in in the history of music, really. Well, and even you know, making records in the '90s, um, you know, the Be- the Beatles studio books too. Like that was, they were in it. You know, that was essential. You know. For, for every for every recording studio, you know, small and big, you know, certainly across city, I'm sure around the world, you know, and somebody be doing like their 26th take of their, you know, 14th guitar part in a song and just be sort of <laughs> sitting on the couch with your head buried in, you know, track and exhaustive track by track listening. And it's also beautiful how, you know, how uh, a few um, elements, well, there's countless elements, but you'll hear a story here or there from somebody who's swept close to those guys, you know, whether, whether, you know, whether a story has happened, you know, recently or even in this memory. I remember 
um, uh, one of the guitar players in, uh, in Paul's band, uh, ended up striking up a relationship with our guitar tech and, you know, Tim telling my friend the story of showing up at, uh, Paul's place on, uh, on the farm, on the estate and getting lost and, you know, trying to look for Paul basically and not, not finding him. And the gardener directs him this way. The groundskeeper directs him that way. The cook directs him this way. <laughs> Eventually he, he comes upon a barn, opens the barn door and, uh, Paul sitting at the end of the barn, uh, painting John's face, um, uh, as it exists on the cover of, uh, Sergeant Peppers wow. and um, he's got the album up. So yeah. So, so, you know, the micro life of the Beatles is still sort of coming back to us and it's still being produced for us. Uh, it seems like you can never learn en enough. And, and the reason that is, is because they impacted, uh, so many people on so many levels, right? So a lot of stories about them. So Dave, how have they influenced you, if at all, by what you've done as a musician? Like, were you ever in doing a track and thinking, ah, I'd like this to sound a little like fill in the blank? I mean, is, is it, or is it just sort of a, a vibe? You know, I remember, um, well, I think, I think it's, it's a sensibility for sure, but, uh, you know, I remember um, being on the road, uh, coming back on tour in 1987 and, um, you know, singing my first ever, ever Beatles harmony in the car, like hitting the seventh, you know, um, <laughs> the set, that, that note, this, you know, uh, the seven in the chord, hitting that with my voice and the guys in the band applauding me because <laughs> I sang, uh, which is effectively a, a Beatles part, which uh, didn't come naturally to me. So that was like, hey, but then he did a, he did a Paul harmony. Um, and, uh, and that being kind of like a ribbon that I'd somehow acquired, you know, graduating to that, that harmony. So, so certainly it was like a, you know, it was a, you know, a technical melodic level um, that you would aspire to. I think that's, that's part of it. But I also think, you know, for the rheostatics um, in particular, you know, you have in both bands, not to compare us, obviously, but, um, four relatively distinct personalities, you know, uh, with their own sort of, um, I mean, I think it's a shared approach, sensibility to music, but different ideas about music. And, you know, the Beatles had four songwriters. We have four songwriters. Um, that was really, not that in, they necessarily gave us kind of tacit permission to be like that, but they certainly established so you could have different singers, you know, uh, doing different songs and, and even, even with the Beatles to that point, and this is such a beautiful thing about them, and I think such a symbolically beautiful thing about them, is that you couldn't really tell, you know, where Paul ends, John begins. Uh, the same with George, and to a lesser extent, Ringo. And that's a lot like us, too, where, you know, we'll have different people singing different parts on different people's, different songwriters' songs, too. So it's a bit of a cafe au lait. It's a bit of a stew, right? You don't know where one ingredient ends and the other begins. And that's a real true representation of what it means to be in a band. And and the Beatles were the apotheosis of that. They were the, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were the best band 
in, 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 in those terms, I think, because they shared so much and collectively they were so strong. Uh, I love what you say because, it, it, I mean, it sounds like it's the same with the Rio Statics, but the, the thing you love about the Beatles is if it was a, a John song or a Paul song or a Ringo song or a George song, they all still gave what they could give to the track regardless of who wrote it. And that's just a, such a great thing. Well, it's important to like in our time, you know, to, well, really in any time, just to, and we're sort of going through that a little bit now in terms of, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we can do when we come together, you know, uh, it's quote a Beatles song, you know, just when we can, when we can all sort of stand um, as one to, 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 to achieve something greater than what we all are individually, um, you know, the power when you think about it is the power that can be generated through that kind of gesture um, is fathomless, you know, and, and, and this, is this is as true in society as it is in art. And um, so really the, that band reflected the, well, the really possible, you know, the, 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 the possibility of possibility, right? I mean, once you, you know, once you can come together and have uh, be united by a, by a single attitude, or sensibility, you can create the greatest art, and you can create the um, the, the kind of society that that we want to live in. So, Dave, you have chosen uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band as the album you'd like to talk about the 1967 cultural high water mark. Why did you pick that one? I picked it partly because it's a little bit out of fashion, I think, these days uh, among Beatles files and, and music files in general. Um, people uh, like to sort of point at its, at its flaws or sort of pick apart its holes and hold it up to the light in terms of whether it works as a concept album, so on and so forth. So I felt, I felt like it needed a little bit, a bit of redemption. It's also the last uh, Beatles record that I listened to in its entirety. So it was sort of present, I think, in my imagination, which is why I turned it out. Okay, well, let me give uh, a little bit of context to it. Uh, it was their eighth studio album, came after Revolver, which came out in August of 66, and it was before the White Album, which came out in November of 68. Uh, was released in the UK May the 26th, 1967, uh, in Canada and North America June 2nd. Uh, it topped the UK album chart for 23 consecutive weeks. Not a single was released from the album, and it was the first Beatles album to share the exact same track list with the American and Canadian releases. Worldwide sales, and this is an old number, this is a 2011 number, more than 32 million, and I'm, I'm sure probably another 5 million since then easily. Uh, sessions ran from November 24th, 1966 through April 21st, 67. They spent at the time an unprecedented 700 hours in the studio. And uh, it, it came when they, this was when they became a studio band. They finished their big worldwide tour in 66. And I'm sure you know what it's like to come off the road from a grueling tour. You don't want to look at the other guys for probably a few months, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. You don't. That's right. When the when the phone rings, um, you, you you pray that it's not them. Because <laughs> so, because if it's them, it means probably some bad shit has happened. Because that's the only reason they'd be calling you. So they all kind of went off on their own. Uh, John Lennon went off to Spain to work on a movie with Richard Lester, who was the guy who produced Help and Hard Day's Night. Uh, Ringo came to visit him one time. 
Uh, Ringo also hung out with his family in Surrey at his house with his, uh, his kids and wife. George Harrison went to Bombay to study the sitar under Ravi Shankar for a few months. And Paul McCartney did uh, probably what I would have done if I was a Beatle in 1967, and that is hung out in London, took LSD, went to the clubs, and, <laughs> and had a good time, basically. Uh, so, so they all did that, and they walked into Abbey Road Studio 2 the evening of November 24th to start working their new album. And uh, the session started at 7. All the sessions for the album started at 7 and went till early the next morning. And the first track that they started to work on, and I, I wanted to mention these two, Dave, because they're not actually on the album, but they are very much the start of the album, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. Yeah, just a, just a wild and beautiful, beautiful record. Um, you know, an album in a song. The, the Beatles have a few of those, and most great bands do. That's certainly one of them. It's a lifetime in a song, almost a lifetime of uh, of humanity in a composition, and um, and that's beautiful. And the record, that record itself, the double A side, really, you know, uh, with Penny Lane, you've kind of have your Beatles education, you know, on a on a seven inch forty five because what Penny Lane, what what songs complement each other so beautifully, you know. Uh, uh, root beer or cream soda they're different flavors but but all, each of the flavors are so profound well, and it's it's uh, and also uh, you know George Martin to the fore I mean when you talk about strawberry fields famously uh, they did some early takes and uh, and they did some late takes the late ones were much more dense and thick and John Lennon said yeah just put the two pieces together and uh, and of course what made it a big deal <laughs> was that uh, they were a semitone apart and uh, Martin said impossible. Lennon was insistent, and George Martin. Uh, it, it was just it was luck. Actually, the difference in the tempo of the two tracks was nearly the exact ratio of the difference in the keys. So they very speeded the two tracks to the same tempo. And then one of the greatest edits in pop music history. Uh, if you listen for it, you can hear it. It's at exactly one minute into the song. But it, you have to li- you have to listen for it. Uh, it's a, there's a slight change of ambience, and that's about it. Uh, well, and, the, and that's, and, you know, getting back to, uh, you know, sort of the long shadow of, of history of the band, there's also the musical forensic, which is really interesting, too, in terms of alternate takes and, and you know, the, 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 those basic tracks that were kind of assembled, like all that stuff is out there as well. So, you know, for, for those who are discovering the band, you know, those, we, we have those uh, raw materials more or less at our disposal, which are, so inter- so you compare you know you compare somebody now going back to discover the Beatles um, versus somebody who is living during that time. You know, people in in, in 1967, 66, 67 wouldn't have had the opportunity to go and sort of open the toy box and have a look inside and sort of see how it was done. That lent itself a certain magical property, but I also think like the forensic of going back and hearing how all of that was done is magical as well. Penny Lane to me 
is just the quintessential 1967, like it's 1967 in a song. Just the the, the tack piano and the 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 sound has become a bit a bit of a cliche. But I, I mean, and the piccolo trumpet. I mean, it's just. What do you think of that song? I think from a distance, um, it's easy to sort of begrudge that song in a way because it, it really sort of grinds against the kind of progressive psychedelic experimental edge of the Beatles, which probably when all is said and done is more exciting and important, I think. But really, I think, you know, no matter how, you know, it, it, despite being able to view Penny Lane on that level, it does sort of reflect something about the pure aesthetic joy, wonder, and magic about music because once you're in that song or once that song starts, it's really, it's really easy to park all of those feelings. I, for me anyways, and to just kind of enjoy the ride as it's, as it exists. And I I think even just like on a purely sort of philosophical level in terms of the purpose of music and how music does have the ability to kind of cut through um, ideas, theories, philosophies, words, predispositions, attitudes, you know, everybody's had the experience where, you know, you um, uh, uh, bemoan a band or you, you know, you're, you're cynical about a band or you're not a fan of a band. And then a song comes on the radio, you turn to your friend, you say like, who is that? I like that. And they tell you that it's Little Feet, for instance, that was happened to me with Little Feet. All of a sudden I realized it was, you know, by a band that I previously hated. And I think the sort of (laughs) Penny Lane is kind of the essence of that. Like it's easy to really kind of again, measure that up against the wilder, more progressive stuff that the band did and see it as sort of another just kind of music hall workout, you know, parochial, you know, pop exercise until you're actually listening to it and then you just kind of want to jump up and down on the bed. So, yeah, yeah. I, I just love the, you know, the, the the piano sound at the beginning and the, uh, of course, the, the it's a, Dave Mason is the guy playing a B-flat piccolo trumpet. So, uh uh, which is an interesting bit of trivia there. Uh, McCartney wasn't able at that time, didn't have the musical literacy to be able to write out, uh, you know, on a musical chart for that a professional trumpet player would be able to play. So he sang the parts and George Martin wrote them out for the guy to play. And that's how that worked. I also think, you know, the, the, the thing we do, we do forget a little bit too about, um, you know, this is kind of in relief of all of the, um, you know, the, the struggles of the band and the collapse of the band and, you know, the tragic nature of their lives uh, to a certain extent post-Beatles. But the Beatles were a really, really friendly band. And they were friendly sounding and they dealt in sort of the, the joy and wonder and sunshine of life, I think, and the colors of life. And, and, and we're certainly reminded of it through that song. Track side one, cut one is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Kind of welcomes you in. What do you think of that song? Um, I mean, it's, uh, I have to think, I, I try, I, I was trying to listen to it the other day um, in the context of, you know, when it would have been made, when it would have come out. And it really has you know, so many progressive um, elements to it. You know, the, you know, the, 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 the theatrical opening um uh the texture that starts with sort of the crowd murmuring and people settling in um you know there's that and then there's the very kind of sludgy almost sort of swamp-like chorus 
um, which again is, you know, the Beatles kind of, you know, at, at their best, you know, the, 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 the two or three chords kind of cycled after a really interesting sort of pattern established in the verses. And, um, and then, you know, uh, even the, the, just the end of that song, just that's such an interesting little kind of little kind of couplet anyways, the way they kind of get into the next piece. But, you know, and, and I've talked to, to, to people, who've, musicians who, who heard that song. Um, my friend Ken Tobias was in Portland, I think. And uh, uh, they had got an acetate of Sgt. Pepper's um, uh, three days before the album was being released. I think it came to them via David Crosby. Wow. And they had, they had played a show in Portland in a small um, hall. And uh, somebody brought, wheeled in a, tape, a reel-to-reel tape deck. I think so. Maybe maybe it's, it's tape, not not vinyl. But they they listened to the. They all lied down on the floor. And I think they took acid. That maybe that's a detail that I just kind of created. But I think <laughs> I mean their mind, their minds were altered. But they they put that song on. They put that record on. They listened to it twice. All of them lying starfished on the floor. And even the, the the way those two the first and the second I know we're talking mostly about the first track but the way it's the way that first track uh, is sewn into the second track would have been you know just a technique that nobody had ever heard before in the world right um you know one song just seamlessly moving into the other that's to say nothing of the fact that um the second song is ringo too so it's a it's a, a, a voice that um, is probably less familiar to listeners as well and would have been surprising to people and probably w- certainly would have been surprising as the second song mm-hmm. on the Beatles, you know, uh, well, hotly anticipated um, r- release. So just, it's funny, like we, we think of it now in terms of sort of the levers that they're moving around to make this record unlike any other record and interesting, but at the time, those would have been married to an incredible sense of sort of surprise and and wonder at at the things that they were doing yeah that's that's we we kind of alluded to that earlier but that's a uh, I, I i know a couple of older people uh, one guy who i used to work with uh, w- when i was doing hockey games he was a director and he was of that vintage and he was in winnipeg when Sergeant Peppers came out, and he said, I said, Larry, what was it? The guy's name was Larry Brown, great director. I said, Larry, what was it like? And he says, well, he goes, I remember my friend got it the day it came out, and we all went to his house, and we all sat around and listened to it, and we just couldn't believe what we were hearing, and it would have been a mono version coming out of an old record player. And that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore, uh, and I can't imagine, like, Dave, just when you, when you think about it, you've never heard anything like that before the last you heard of the beatles uh you know would have been in terms of an album would have been revolver and then you put this on right and 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 not only that um you know this is this is a creation by a band that sort of has the universe on its back carrying the weight of a weight of people's musical expectations like you know being sports guys we can talk about you know, comparable um, uh, feats by superstar athletes that keep, you know, no matter the, you know, just no matter what kind of burden is placed upon them, no matter the caliber caliber of their team, you know, beset by injury, you know, they're able to rise above it. And the Beatles were sort of the artistic equivalent of that. You know, they, they, um, 
this is this isn't this isn't a cursory listen. This is this is a record that everybody is keyed into the minute the needle drops. And so, my God, just the fact that they were able to sustain their sense of imagination and play and and work with those expectations and be manipulative of the listening public and and of music at the time in the best possible way is an incredible achievement. Well, here's some cool stuff about the song and then we'll move on to a little help from my friends, but uh, some cool technical things. McCartney plugged his bass right into the recording console as opposed to being recorded off of a mic'd up amp, which was the normal approach at that time. And uh, Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer, said uh, artist, no, no artist he'd worked with had done this, just bypassed the amps and plugged right in. And the other thing, you touched on it, it's a really heavy song for its time. And when you look at it in context... Uh, I think they were no doubt influenced by right right around this time was the emergence of the power pop trio. So you had The Who with guitar, bass, drums, Cream, uh, Jimi Hendrix experience. And matter of fact, they'd seen Hendrix play two nights before they went in to record this. And I think that sound is maybe what they were going after. It's interesting how, um, yeah, how on that, on that, on that piece, like just the chorus is really, it's just, you know, it's a couple of chords just sort of slammed, slammed over and over again. And this is a band that's responsible for, you know, some of the greatest sort of traveling, um, you know, chordal, you know, uh, uh, movements in, in, in popular music and very beautiful and sophisticated and studied um, voicings. But this is no, there's no voicing, right? It's just, they're just laying into it. There's a couple of examples of that actually on the record. So I think they did, yeah, there was something they were discovering sort of the simplicity of power in that, in that, in that stuff, I think. So uh, track two, side one, and you've alluded to it. Uh, and again, back in that time, there were, I think the technical term war was, was there were rills, R-I-L-L-S, between all the tracks, uh, particularly the British pressed ones. It would be four or five seconds long. And the Beatles decided to do this with this, with no rills and some of the songs actually segueing right into one another. So it, with a little help from my friends, was written with two things in mind. A, it was going to be a segue from the first song. And then I've got a Paul McCartney quote here. Uh, it, it was written specifically for Ringo, and McCartney said, I always saw those songs as the equivalent of writing a James Bond film theme. Uh, he said it was a challenge. It was something out of the ordinary for us, meaning him and Lennon, because we actually had to write in a key for Ringo, and you also had to write a little tongue-in-cheek. Now, have, what are your thoughts on that, and have you had experience? I know writing songs for somebody else to sing. That's got to be different. Yeah, I've you know I've done it uh, from the beginning with the band, and 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 purely out of you know practical reasons that you know the other two main singers and the, the Rios were always you know way and still are pure vocalists, pure singers. I, I was never one of those, never one of those singers. So it was partly self consciousness. I would write for others to sing, but also. I just knew that they could do more with the song, frankly, you know, if they, if I, if it was uh, given to them and the other two guys are slower writers than me too, a little bit, N not necessarily less, less prolific, but a little bit slower. So when we would be putting together a record, I'd be, um, and also I was, you know, I was, um, if I was self-conscious in terms of the way my voice sounded, I wasn't necessarily self-conscious as a person. So if we were sitting around, you know, jamming, I always had a song and I was always happy to, 
play a song and in a weird way I never really mattered to me what they thought of the song you know I was just I was just throwing stuff out so that's kind of how it happened and I think that McCartney quote I must say I think that McCartney quote probably applies to the other I mean I think it more aptly applies to the other Ringo um, pieces I think this this is in fact I don't think there's really anything sort of quirky or um, you know particularly playful about this song I think this is a beautiful hymn to friendship I think it's a, you know, it's a deeply moving, really moving piece of music. Um, you know, Ringo obviously could be goofy with the best of them, but there's nothing really goofy about it. Um, also, you know, through my listen yesterday, uh, uh, Paul and John are quite loud, mixed mixed up in um, the first piece mm-hmm. uh, in the theme, and um, and George and George and Ringo are the prominent voices. On with little help from my friends, and and you wonder whether that was purposeful as well, whether it was an opportunity to sort of showcase the entire band, um, the textures and the voices of all four of them, as opposed to the two central figures. So I think it's interesting, you know, with the with the chorus, it's like George is reefed in that mix. He's really his voice is quite profound in it. But um, no, I think that song is a it's a really moving song of, of friendship and. Um, and uh, Ringo does a beautiful, beautiful job of it. And I also think singing drummers too, like, you know, singing from sort of behind the kit was could, was a thing. It could be a thing. But this is a lead vocal performance. Like, this is not a, this isn't a, you know, uh, uh, what goes on. This is, this is Ringo at, you know, fronting the band. Like, he is at the center of that song. And I think in that way, it's, they play a bit of a, it's a bit of a parlor trick too, because that hadn't really been part of, music or the way the way bands did things either well Ringo said in 1992 in an interview it took a lot of coaxing from Paul to get me to sing that last note it just felt very high uh the now it was one octave higher and here's a I'll read you a quote from Jeff Emmerich who was the engineer from his memoir uh he relates that um you know that Ringo was was sheepish about doing this, and Paul McCartney said, "No, Ring, you've got to do it properly. Uh, just put your mind to it. You can do it," said George Harrison. And John added some helpful, if decidedly non-technical, advice: "Just throw your head back and let her rip." And <laughs> after several attempts, uh, he scaled the vocal heights, uh, and I guess there were cheers and uh, and scotch and cokes for everybody afterwards. But uh, to me, that's just such a lovely picture: is them all encouraging. A, a guy who didn't have the vocal range of of the others saying, "Come on, you can do it. You can hit that high note." And it's just, it's still when I hear it, it's it, it's such a joyous thing when he hits that high note at the end and the song tails out. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's funny when you mentioned about the seven hundred hours, and you know, they 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 devoted, um, you know, uh, all of their all of their uh, imagination and just sort of the just the exhausting kind of mental and physical stamina that it takes to record a record like that. You kind of wonder, um, you know, looking back on that 700 hours and looking back at Let It uh, White Album and, and looking sort of looking into what became of the band, whether um, something wasn't in the long run maybe sacrificed by by working as 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 relentlessly hard as they did on on this record they kind of didn't really you know leave a ton um for for what came after and you know but 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 you would spend that currency if you had it as a band 
that um, loved each other and worked for each other, encouraged each other and created together. If that's happening in a band and it's going well, uh, you'd be foolish not to spend that currency. And the, the song famously covered by Joe Cocker, who did it in 6-8 uh, time rather than the 4-4 four, four of the original. And it became, of course, a soul classic and a number one record in the UK and uh, Europe. A great, great cover version. So now we move on to the next track, side one, and it is the uh, acid-drenched, I think anyways, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. They headed into the studio at 7 o'clock in the evening of February the 28th and spent most of the next eight hours till 3 in the morning rehearsing and going through this song. That's also, you know, the chorus of that is very similar to Sgt. Pepper's. It's just a couple of songs kind of slammed down, and I think the... The, um, and just, you know, the, the, the words sort of cycled over and over again. And, and the, 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 you know, the kind of the calliope, the, the, um, the keyboard, um, that sort of fairground keyboard mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of that song is a motif that's sort of established early on um, uh, uh, in the sequence. And that's, the, that's a musical motif for a sonic theme that that is throughout a lot of the record, which is interesting. Um, John's voice, too. You know, you have... With the first two tracks, you have a lot of group sing, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, kind of gang choruses and, 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 and call and response and that sort of thing. Um, John is, is uh, his voice is so um, uh, naked and, and, um, and present uh, in the mix. It's all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden the lens um, tightens a little bit, right? It's less of a wide view, less of a, of a group view. And we're right, right, kind of in the throat of the singer in, in that in that composition, and yeah, it's just a it's a miraculous. It's also one of those again, like people talked about, you know, uh, Brian Wilson and his pocket symphonies. You know, this is a this is a really small song and a really simple song that is just, you know, it's rendered huge, and that's partly the production for sure but it's just also just the nature of the composition and the parts and the way they kind of swim together um and it shows kind of the hugeness of them you know as individual players um and and you know how how skilled and how interesting they were in terms of what what they did to each other's songs that um a relatively simple song like that can seem like an incredible uh, achievement and endeavor it's great it's an amazing piece of music here's here's a funny part that they've they've always they've always stuck to the story but uh lennon maintains that the song was based on a, a drawing that his son julian brought home and the title written on it was lucy in the sky with diamonds depicting a, a classmate up in the sky and he says that was the inspiration it might well have been but I think they were taking some serious lysergic acid diethylamide <laughs> at the time, and that's some of the imaging. For me, that's such a psychedelic song. Uh, never mind the drawing. Well, it's interesting, too. You know, again, when I was listening to this record um, yesterday uh, for the purposes of talking about it, um, between, um, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but between Losing the Sky with Diamonds, um, She's Leaving Home, you know, these are songs about women, girls from a, you know, a, a female um, female subject, um, uh, you know, uh, approach, and uh, you know, dreaming the Beatles, the the, the great book. Um, the author's name is lost to me. I was trying to remember it before we spoke, but um, one of his, you know, he points out that uh, the Beatles were um, enlightened in a sense of you know writing a 
about women and, and, and not objectifying women and writing about them with a kind of respect. And I think that probably comes a lot, you know, from John probably in particular in the way, you know, we raised him and that sort of thing and great, huge female presence in his life. But Lucy, it's great. It's Lucy, you know, it's not Julian, it's Lucy, right? And, and so in that sense, you know, even sort of on a gender kind of basis, the Beatles are trying to make room for everybody a little bit, whether that's purposeful, I don't know. But that's kind of the, certainly the way it is through the beginning of that record. Yeah, that book uh, that you're talking about is written by Rob Sheffield, uh, which is, yeah. if you're a Beatles fanatic, it's a great read. A couple of uh, technical things about Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Obviously, uh, more very speed used on this track than any other Beatles track. Uh, everything in the song except for Paul's bass and George's less lead guitar uh, were played back at a faster speed than they were recorded on. That cool organ sound you talked about was just one of the stock Abbey Road organs. It's a Lowry Heritage DSO-1. Uh, and the, the thing that gave it the sound was the organ used tube oscillators, which allowed the notes to kind of decay after the key was released. So it could give you that kind of bell-like harpsichord type sound, which is, and also had a built-in Leslie speaker. So uh, just sitting around, just sitting around <laughs> at, at Abbey Road. So then we go into the next track, uh, which again, one of those really, for me, Sonny McCartney tracks, Getting Better. Uh, recording started March 9th, right after they'd spent the previous days working on uh, the title track and Lovely Rita. And they went in and worked on that. And it, I, it's, it's uh, in, in, the, in the Barry Miles book about McCartney many years from now, um, McCartney says that he came up with the, the sort of title while he was walking his dog on Primrose Hill, which is an area in London. And then John provided the usual sort of Greek chorus, uh, you know, uh, getting better all the time and Lennon with the, you can't get no worse. Well, listening to it, I, I, I was, uh, I immediately, you know, was able to inventory, um, you know, popular songs that, that followed that one, you know, throughout the, the course of musical history that have stolen sort of bald face from that <laughs> technique, you know, whether it's, I guess the Starman probably Bowie's is the perfect example of that. I was thinking of like Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran, just that sort of that single note, guitar and piano repeated over. It's just, it's, it's such a common device. Everybody uses it and they used it because the Beatles did it and they, you know, they invent, they invented that shit. Like that's a part of, you know, part of our musical language now and and, um, you know, so, so there are these triumphs within the triumphs, really, you know, like it's a, again, it's one of those jump up on the bed songs. Uh, McCartney was so good at that from, you know, Oh, Blood, Oh, Blood, Da, to, to this piece, Penny Lane. And, um, but yeah, they're, they're just, they, they were such that they were able to discover these really interesting ways, interesting parts, interesting ways of disassembling music that, um, that just people use almost in a shock-worn way now, in a way that probably for some generations, they're not even aware, especially in vocally as well, but not even aware that it was, these are the, these are the Beatles. They're patented Beatles parts, but they're just part of our common language now. 
And the session that night, it's a sort of a famous story in, in Beatles lore, uh, March 21st, and they were adding vocals to the track. And uh, John Lennon was, was uh, unbeknownst to George Martin, uh, was was tripping on LSD. And uh, George Martin thought that he wasn't feeling well, so he, he ushered him outside onto the roof of Studio Two to get some air. And then he goes back in, and as the story goes, McCartney and Harrison said, "Yeah, hey, where's John? And Martin said, oh, he's, he's out getting some air on the, on the roof. He didn't feel well. So they immediately <laughs> realized that their pal was, uh, was, was tripping on LSD. There were no rails on the roof and about a 30-foot <laughs> drop to the ground, so up they went to get him back in. <laughs> So uh, that could have had a uh, that could have had a bad ending that night, but it, uh, no kidding. It, uh, in the end, it didn't. So then we get to our next track, the uh, the fixing a hole. I'll read you a quote from McCartney. Uh, he says it was the idea of me being on my own, being able to do what I want. If I want, I'll paint the room in a colorful way. I was living out pretty much on my own uh, on this house in Cavendish Avenue, which is just around the corner from Abbey Road Recording Studios. And he goes, it's pretty much his song. And he loves the double meaning of uh, in the chorus. Or at the, if I'm wrong, I'm right. Uh, where I belong. So if I'm wrong, I'm right. Where I belong. So the double meanings. Great deal. little play on, on lyrics there. George Martin plays the harpsichord for the start of that song. Uh, what does that song? What does that song say to you? Uh, this, I, honestly, I think that's probably that's that's probably a song I would swap out. I think um, <laughs> I don't think it's you know. And McCartney, God bless him. Like you know, he's he could find you know he could find a, a a gum wrapper in a potted plant, and he would be able to craft you know a beautiful two and a half minute song about it. Doesn't necessarily mean they're all going to be. You know, spun spun with gold and um, yep, yep, yeah. So so yeah, uh, definitely a le- a less resonant composition um, uh, for me. And and uh, it's a it's a run of three. Interesting, like just even sequencing, you know, the the record. It's a run of three McCartney um, pieces, I think, in a row, right? And um, it, it, somebody who produces that much and writes that much, um, you know, is going to have. You're not. You're not gonna. You're not gonna love it all, and there's gonna be some. You know. You know. Some songs that are stronger than others, and I think this is probably one that's less strong for me. A cool technical thing about it: it was the first new Beatles track to be recorded outside of Abbey Road Studios, uh, as the story uh-huh. goes. Yeah, that's uh, why. There you go. All, <laughs> all three studios were booked that night. There's the we've sent, and so they went to a place called Regent Sound Studios. No longer there. Mm-hmm. It was on Tottenham Court Road, but uh, and they hired in the harpsichord that you hear George Martin playing at the start of the song. But and and you could speak to this uh, way more authoritatively than I could but uh, is it interesting to you at all that they were able to create that sound the Beatles sound in another studio other than one that they were more comfortable working in and was a much bigger room in a different room is is does that strike you as a as a musician is that an issue at all no you sound like yourself no matter where you are you know no matter what context um and sometimes you even sound like yourself, even when you're not, it's not you that's, you know, uh, uh, playing the composition. Um, again, that kind of gets back to sensibility and attitude and view and, um, you know, turn of phrase and just musical ideology is, is inherent in everybody individually, singularly. But so, no, it wouldn't really matter, uh, I don't think, 
Um, also, uh, I would, I would the song's probably mixed at Abbey Road too. I would think. Yes, so it was. Yes, it was. There's yeah. a little bit of you know uh, the paint paint cans are there, right? So they can splash that across. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it is un- it's partly unusual that they would have, you know, been been set up and locked into this one place. So just logistically, it would have been a bit of a battle, but that, that wasn't for them. That's probably for, you know, Jeff Emmerich and, and George Martin to make sure everything's in place when they walk in the studio to, to record. And I'm guessing too, from their point of view, they would have, um, even in terms, just in terms of the baffling and in terms of the way they would have structured um, the recording environment, it would have been very similar to, to Abbey Road. But in terms of the room, it wouldn't have made that big a difference. So then we get to the penultimate track on the the first side. And as you mentioned, it closes out a run of three consecutive McCartney songs. It's called She's Leaving Home. Uh, it was inspired by a story that McCartney had seen in the Daily Mail, which is a newspaper in the UK, on Feb 27th. It was a headline about a 17-year-old girl who ran away from home, leaving behind a mink coat, diamond rings, and her own car. And the father was quoted in the story as saying, I can't imagine why she should run away. She has everything here. And that inspired a song. And again, John Lennon with that sort of Greek chorus, just like in Getting Better, uh, you know, we gave her most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. Uh, to me, it is just a beautiful song that could be it, that could be a Harold Pinter play. It's it's just it's, it tells such a story. Yeah, it's a it's a lyrical tour de force for sure. I must say too that this is a very pro newspaper record, so I'm, maybe that's why I chose this one in the end. But yeah, there's a lot gleaned from the from the pages of the. You know, Fleet Street, which is cool, but um, yeah, no, just uh, you know, Paul's. You know, John has a, such a John has such a particular lyrical sensibility, you know, and John was the you know the author, and um, you know, he was such a what's the word, you know, a um, you know, uh, just the cir- the circus of words for him, you know, he, he was uh, you know, uh, he had he had fun with them and and was would always be twisting them and. And mashing them together in different ways. McCartney really isn't isn't um, viewed um, through the same lens, but but he should be. He really should be um, heralded um, for uh, for for the, the you know the, the lyrical kind of perfection. I think of songs like this, and obviously Eleanor Rigby as well. This is kind of the sister song to that. I think mm-hmm. partly. Yeah, yeah, very um, much. Yeah, but, but yeah, no, but just in, and even from the even from the top of that song. With the, is it a harp? Uh, yes, it, it, or is, it, or is it, it, it a harp? It is a harp. Uh, the, the, the Beatles play no instruments on the track. John and Paul double tracked in vocals. Four violins, three violas, two cellos, one double bass, and Sheila Bromberg was the harp session player who was who was brought in to play it. Yes, it's nice. I mean, I, I, even I think of hearing that texture, that instrument. You know, 1967, lying on the floor of a concert hall in Portland, Oregon, like just this the way that just splashes, you know, uh, uh, off the vinyl. And again, a, you know, a texture, an instrument that you wouldn't have come across in, in, in a song. And I also think of that uh, beginning of that song being kind of the um, inspiration for Love of My Life by Queen on Night at the Opera. Very, very similar beginning, you know, the long sort of you know, plucking, stroking of the harp. Um, it's a great, you know, it's great. And 
and and Paul, Paul's again, like I still think it, I do think at the end of the day that, um, like I said, the Beatles are kind of a friendly, compassionate band, and and Paul's a compassionate singer. You know, um, don't know what he's like as a human being. Kind of doesn't matter because he's able to kind of communicate, um, you know, a multitude of. <laughs> you know, of emotion really and perspectives from different characters, the parents, you know, and the and the runaway and the friends, all in this one composition. Man, magnificent. Yeah, as I say, it could be a Harold Pinter play. It's, you know, just a, a three-act play. She's she's run away. How could she have done this to us? And she's off meeting somebody, having fun. Like, it's just... Uh, the, the arrangement uh, was the only Beatles track on which... Uh, George Martin did not write the arrangement. It was a guy named Mike Leander. Uh, George Martin wasn't available. Uh, Leander, pretty well-known guy. He uh, executive produced Jesus Christ Superstar in the late 60s, wrote for a bunch of films, sadly uh, passed away in 96 uh, at the age of only 54. But uh, just a, I just one of my favorite songs in the album. I just think it's such a beautiful song. And that gets us to the last track on side one, and it is very much a John Lennon song after three McCartney songs in a row, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, which was famously, uh, the lyrics were just almost word for word taken off of a Victorian circus poster that John purchased on January 31st in Seven Oaks, Kent, when they were there shooting the Strawberry Fields Forever promo film. And it was on the floor, and he looked at it, McCartney was over and they wrote a song around it. It's it's another psychedelic trip. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the walls. Yeah, it's almost sort of um, you know, beyond psychedelia in a way. Um, just just when you think about, you know, if you think about sort of psychedelic music as a modern con construct. This this song is, um, you know, it's barnyard weirdness. Like it's rural <laughs> English countryside. You know, it's eighteen hundreds. You know, the traveling, um, you know, freak show. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 beyond psych- psychedelia in a way. It's it's just marries all this, you know, all these other elements, sort of from across time. You know, and I think that's one of John's, you know, um, superpowers is um, he's able to write songs. And I think Across the Universe is another example where you don't know whether you're living in the, in the past, present or future when you're listening to them. Um, they could have been written, you know, uh, either 20 years before or 20 years later um, because of the... Um, well, again, I don't. I don't even really know why he's a, he's able to do that because I I think in a way even as a kind of soul he was kind of existing in in both of those mm-hmm. those realms, being a bit of a time time traveling genius cipher, you know. But um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a and, and the thing as well is it's very you know, it's both sort of soft and, and jagged at the same time, I think a little bit, you know, as it enters that sort of wild, you know, last um, 40 seconds of the composition where 
literally, you're, you're probably going to tell the story about the cut up tape. But, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, yeah tell, you can, no, you can yeah, tell you it, should, yeah. Because it really, yeah, just, <laughs> it, it also is nice too because, <clears throat> you know, a band that is very um, considered, clearly, so much thought goes into these records and the way they sound and the way they come out and the way the sequence and everything. This, 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 there's chaos in this song and there's, you know, the sort of the ra random kind of jumble of life and history and time is reflected in the texture and the aesthetics of that song too. So while the Beatles are sort of telling you that everything's all right, we got it in hand. Like we are the band for the planet. We've got it all figured out. This is what we're going to deliver to you. They've also got an element of them that really doesn't know what the fuck is going on and where we're going and what life is. And that's beautiful too to be so confident and capable that they're able to express that. Well, and it was so, I mean, the story is that you referred to, it's, uh, it, they were they were trying to get some kind of a freaky fairground sound. So George Martin was in playing a Hammond organ and then they, they, they sped it up and it didn't really work. So what he did was he, he took the, the Hammond organ playing, uh, cut it off. He had Jeff Emmerich slice it up. So he cut it into 19 pieces of tape and jumbled them up on the floor and then picked them up and taped them together, some backwards and just completely random. And then they added harmonicas and tambourines and the, the trusty Lowry organ again. And that gave this big sort of whirring sound. I mean, it, I'm sure that must be a plug-in now on, uh, on editing <laughs> software. But, exactly. but There's it, an app for it, I'm sure. Yeah, but it was a lot of work <laughs> then. And that gives it that, that kind of weird sound. So we flip the album over onto side two, and it starts off with, uh, I mean, the only George Harrison big contribution on the album, Within You, Without You. Uh, and it was his second composition in the Indian sort of classical style. He did one called Love to You, uh, which was on uh, Revolver. Uh, and it really, it stands out for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which I can't imagine what hearing a song that sitar heavy would have been like when you first played the album. Yeah, no, it, uh, yeah, that's right. And, and con you know, listen, at, at the end of the day, when <laughs> you could take 10 people in a line and ask them what their favorite song is from that, you know, or 100 people, uh, what's the favorite song for Peppers? Very few are going to tell you that this is their favorite composition. This does not, you know... Um, uh, uh, besmirch or belittle the the you know the the importance I think of of where it is on the record and 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 its its role and and again like the Beatles did see themselves at this time they were aware of their powers and they 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 were aware of the fact that you know if everybody most everybody in um, all corners of the earth were if not listening to them certainly aware of them. And, and the fact that they were able to kind of widen their, you know, their musical realm, their purview by, um, you know, by drawing in instruments from a completely different culture. And this say nothing of the fact that you're looking at a time in, in London, the history, the cultural history of London, you know, and, and post-partition, um, uh, there's a significant South Asian you know, force culture in, in that city. And they're just drawing, they're drawing more of humanity to them. 
and 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 in what they do um, through this piece of musical, it's a beautiful gesture of uh, creative largesse, I think, a little bit, um, and and turned a lot of people on to something that you know, kind of music they'd never heard before, and that's fantastic. It's beautiful that they were able to do that in a completely kind of unpretentious way. I mean, George, I think, came by that honestly. He did, and you know, that's he. They're really trying there, and and the fact that they gave it you know, a relatively prominent place. I mean, song one, side two is a big song, Romy. Like that's, that's a big tune because you've listened to, you've listened to side one, you've taken it in, you know, you've, you've made yourself a sandwich, smoked another joint, gone to the washroom, whatever, made out with your girlfriend, boyfriend, and here we go, side two. And it's what? You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. it's amazing. No, it's amazing. I, uh, that, uh, that's a cool point that you bring up. I, I've never sequenced an album, and uh, you're right. It, that, that would say something that, hey, let's let's kick off uh, side two with, with George's track, which none of the other Beatles appear on. Uh, there's a sitar, a dulruba, a tabla, and uh, Harrison strummed a little bit on a guitar and, and uh, played a zither. Uh, but uh, it was it was him directing all of these Indian musicians with the assistance of George Martin and George Martin, I think one of the great arrangers in in popular sure. music, uh, arranged a beautiful part with uh, some violins and violas to sort of mimic the same sound of those Indian instruments. It's a technically impressive feat. And then that goes into the next track now. If, if you were lukewarm on fixing a hole, this is the one I'm lukewarm on. It's When I'm 64, uh, which was a, a song Paul McCartney had sung since he was a kid. He wrote it when he was 16 years old, and it had been around since the Cavern days, and they finally committed it to vinyl. Um, not my favorite, but what do you think? Yeah, my, not my wife's favorite either, uh, so you're a good company. Um, but, but, well, you know, again, like, listening to the record as an album okay listening to it as a whole um but when i'm 64 um is freed from those kind of trappings i think um of this kind of quaint you know music hall naive music hall um, portrait of 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 old age but when you listen to it two things when you listen to it after um you know the previous you know, uh, South Asian jam. Uh, it's, 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 you're struck by the, um, astonishing capabilities of a band that could, you know, uh, abut these two compositions, right? It's like, what? So, so that's remarkable, but also I do think, you know, and Paul takes a lot of stick for this, uh, to use a British expression, uh, uh you know, writing about old people, but it's kind of, it's kind of hard. It's pretty hard to do, especially hard to do if you're, you know, uh, a dude in your, you know, mid to late twenties and, and, um, you know, re- rendered so, uh, unselfconsciously and unabashedly. And I also must say from a musical perspective as well, this is partly from a, um, what's the term? Uh, you know, it's a, uh, composed almost in the spirit of kind of an archival record. It, it's sort of, it's trying very hard to sound like a song, you know, from the the forties, and 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 yep. let's let's face it. At the end of the day, it does. Like it, the, the, the 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 clarinets, the 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 Hoagie Carmichael arrangement of the clarinets and the drums are they're perfect 
it's a perfect, you know, wax mannequin, I think, of, of a song. And, and so, again, it's just a different, it's a skill you kind of forget they have that, especially McCartney, right? He's able to confect a song that sounds like it's coming from, uh, you know, another era. And um, I don't know, probably the older I get, the more I like this song, too, I think a little bit. Um, you know, it's not your teenager's rock anthem, but it has its place too. And it's, um, and in a weird way, it's, it's, it's all, it's gorgeous in its own right. Too. It, and that, that cool, uh, hoagie Carmichael sound, as you put it, that it gets, uh, again, uh, I'd say it again, George Martin, brilliant arranger, uh, McCartney wanted something. So Martin scored uh, a bit of music with a clarinet trio, two B flat clarinets and a bass nice. clarinet. And uh, so they come in. It gives it kind of that, as as McCartney called it, a lurking schmaltz factor. You know, a band kind of a band that's not afraid to kind of be idiots or to be kind of goofy or playful is is a confident band. You know, you're not. It means that you're not too worried about every song having to express the very, you know, the most articulate depth of your of your soul you're also confident and 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 happy with just kind of having a good time and sort of trying to just do kind of goofy stuff and 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 that the beatles were as good as that as anybody you know and our, our days are spent you know having going through the carousels of emotion you know one minute i'm gonna feel like an idiot and the next minute i'm gonna be burdened by you know worry and anxiety and the next moment, I'm maybe going to feel love for the world. And the next moment, I'm going to feel hatred and anger towards something. So it's all of that. And, and it's a great sort of masterful feat of theirs that they were able to encompass all of that. So then that goes into uh, Lovely Rita which started recording on the 23rd of February, right after, at the same session, they finished up a mix of A Day in a Life. So they finished mixing that uh, spectacular song that we're coming to, and then they started work on Lovely Rita Meter Maid, a four-track recorder, which is what they had at Abbey Road, and they went through Harrison's guitar on track one, Lennon's guitar on track two, Ringo's drums track three, and McCartney's piano on track four, then they bounced them down as they had to. And Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer, maintains that McCartney was going after sort of a Beach Boys sound with this song. Do you hear do you hear that? Yeah, I do. I think it's the most obvious probably on this piece on this composition, I think. Um yeah, uh I'm trying to think how exactly without actually having it in front of me, but but um yeah, it's especially you know, certainly the echo on the chorus vocal sounds really kind of sounds really wet really kind of ocean swept a little bit i think you know and it is true you have to kind of uh place this record and this recording um against all of the other recordings that are coming out just before it or around the same time and yeah they can't help but sort of bounce off those influences you know and and you know they're great magpies the beatles were too right but again because they were so confident in who they were as their own distinct musical personalities that were able to take ideas from others and, and apply it to them and still sound like them. The distinctive thing is that kind of solo in the middle with the uh, the wobbly piano and uh, what they did to get it sort of that weird sound to it was they put 
tape on the cap stands of the uh, recorder so that when it was going through, it would almost very speed the tape going across the record heads. And it gave it that kind of weird sound wobbling all over the place. And then they bounced it through the echo chamber and, and so on. And then all kinds of percussive effects, including famously uh, toilet paper being run through a comb <laughs> and closely well, mic'd. And, 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 you know, uh, it's, it's hard to know until you kind of been in that spot, but, um, you know, one of it, it, it is a great moment when you're able to kind of, you know, think about what you want to do sonically with a piece of music and just sort of do, do and working through it and trying to figure out, you know, how does this sound like, you know, uh, a, a, an army of marching toys or, you know, we did um, the first song on introducing happiness is called Fan Letter to Michael Jackson. And, um, I wanted is uh, we didn't know this at the time, but it ended up being the first song on the record. And I wanted it to sound as if you were opening a toy box, a music box, and it was like little miniature, you know, half-inch rheostatics were were holographically um, on a little um, you know stage uh, playing the melody for this song. And I was like, so how do we do this? And then, you know, of course, uh, our producer Michael Philip Voivoda had us play the song at a at a sludge like pace and then of course then you speed up the tape and then I, just that that the, the, the feel the the, the the experience of having that experiment succeed you know and having it kind of come back back to you in the studio listening to it and that sort of triumph because really like writing a song i mean there's an inherent triumph in that you've written the song you've got the lyrics you've got the it all compositionally works and then when you can, when can you achieve, have these achievements in the studio that lend themselves to that creative experience? It's value added, right? It's a different kind of. So the Beatles would have been, you know, they could write songs. They knew how to write songs. Like they were the best at it. So for them to kind of apply that creativity and their ideas to um, the studio and to have those ideas work, uh, it would been really gratifying for them. And you could see, yeah, obviously it was because they kept doing it. I love the rheostatic story. You, you can keep those coming. Okay. And, and I know, I, I know, Melville gets gets a lot of the love when you talk about the the rheostatics catalog. Uh, I have my favorite has always been introducing happiness. I just I, I I love that album and the experimentation on it, the sound of it. Um, although, as I mentioned off the top, uh, the new one that came out well new to 2019 uh listened to it for the first time just a couple of days ago and like that one too but i'm still if i had to pick if we're doing a show introducing happiness would be would be my one for oh, what it's thanks worth. well you talk about you know um with the, the lowry organ um uh and the beatles just it being at abbey road the same was true for us at compass point studios where uh you know because countless you know brilliant records have been made there from Back in Black to uh, Talking Heads, Remain in Light, Fear of Music, um, you know, Eric Clapton. Um, when we landed to record there, uh, Bon Jovi were leaving. And when we left, Jimmy Buffett was arriving. So it's just like all, you know, every heavy, heavy musician had gone through there. But you'd open a closet, uh, Paul, and, um, you know, ask the engineer, like, what is that, that Dan Electro, uh, you know, amp? late 60s Dan Electro combo. What's what's that like? And the, the guy and, and Terry Manning, who ran the studio, would say, oh, so it was good enough for Jimmy Page on Zeppelin 2. It's, so it's like, oh, really? Okay. 
So <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> yeah. So you plug it in, it's like, oh, fuck, of course it sounds good. So yeah, so those studio that's one of the great again, like you know, life in the studio, it can be especially in a great studio, it can be an incredible experience. So out of Lovely Rita, we get into Good Morning, Good Morning, which, uh, I mean, it is just, if you love John Lennon, and and many people do, uh, including me, it is such a classic, for me, John Lennon sneer at middle-class British life. Nothing to do to save his life, call his wife and Nothing to say but what a day, how's your boy been? For me, the thing that's distinctive about that song is the, you know, John was getting uh, going in this direction, um, uh, and you see, you know, with happiness is a warm gun, and 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 comes even some of the stuff he does on Abbey Road, how he will clip, you know, a verse. Um, He'll make some verses three quarter lengths, um, and he will, you know, drop a beat um, in the chorus to make it sound like it's um, in a different time signature that it actually is. So he'll do these really interesting things with um, with rhythm and tempo, which is interesting because he's not real. When you think about those kind of cut up aspects of songwriting, it's not. The first thing that people talk about, but he um, he liked to do it and he did it really well. And um, also, we haven't you know talked a ton about Ringo, and I'm not even sure he's the drummer. Like John Lennon's got that great line, you know. Someone asked him, you know, do you think Ringo's one of the best drummers in the world? And he says he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. Um, but but Ringo is great on this track. I think he's really like he holds it together, and that. The, the, the part is kind of a, you know, the, the composition is funky in terms of it, where, where it is rhythmically and how stuff begins when you don't expect it to begin. So a really good band track. And I do think the band, the band, I think the band had to be there for John a little bit more than it had to be there for Paul because, um, you know, John later became a, uh, you know, more assured uh, uh, piano player. Um, but McCartney was kind of a musical genius, really. When, you know, just instrumentally. And so the band, uh, he, I think he needed the band less, but I think John needed the band a lot. And I think these two, these two tracks show that it's a real band playing together and really supporting him. Uh, some cool things about it. Um, that great guitar solo you hear on there is not George Harrison. It's Paul McCartney who played the guitar solo and he played it on his Fender Esquire, which is a single pickup Telecaster. And he used that for all the Pepper Sessions. And then, of course, the animal sounds at the end. Uh, we talked about the Beach Boys earlier, Dave, but uh, Carol and No, the end of that song on Pet Sounds, uh, with all the various animal sounds and the train going panning across the stereo picture, I can't think that they weren't influenced by that with the animals at the end of this. Yeah, they, um, yeah, th- uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples, too. I mean, just people, for musically, like people's... Uh, songwriters and musicians ideas you know of what could be on a pop record were you know blasted apart probably by those two bands probably by the Beatles and the Beach Boys probably first I mean you probably maybe put the Who in there a little bit as well and um, and Dylan to a 
point, I guess. But um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, whatever, whatever you needed, like, you know, it was, it wasn't, you know, we were this, some pepper, um, I just kind of confirmed the fact that, um, you know, if, if, if traditional songs were being kind of held up to the light and questioned, you know, here they're just, you know, booted out the, out the window, up, up, you know, the fifth floor window to the ground. You know, whatever you needed to do to facilitate the nature of a song you did, you used. And, and animals were, you know, were just another example of that. I guess I should, should put Pink Floyd in there, speaking of animals as well, because, you know, McCartney spent a lot of time cross-legged uh, on the floor of the UFO club watching Pink Floyd play too. So Sid Barrett should be probably given his due as well. He did, and they were actually in the studio. I'm looking through my notes. They were in the studio recording one of their albums one night when the Beatles were working on it. I think it was Lovely huh. Rita, and uh, they popped into the studio. The cool thing about the song, the neat thing, is at the end, that last sort of chicken cluck uh, is placed and uh, and adjusted so that it transforms right into the first note of the guitar on the reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> recorded in one day, April 1st. It was one of the it was the last song started for the album and they, they, they felt they needed something to fit in there. And to me, you can almost feel the energy in the track because it was just one manic session. They went in and knocked this thing off. That that that's what comes through to me. Yeah, no, you? I didn't know that, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm really grateful for the uh, for, for for the the way the inclusion of this sort of this this framing element uh, on the record. Um, partly, well, for a couple, couple of reasons. I think one is, you know, one of the reasons uh, Pepper is uh, is maybe um, is assailed a little bit from certain certain um, uh, corridors is because, you know, it's held up as the classic kind of uh, concept album, blah 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 blah, and people argue it's not a concept album. Um, certainly not compared to you know Tommy, um, that sort of, you know, and other other great concept records. But um, it's conceptual, I think, in the way that. Um, you know, uh, XCC's Scott Skylarking is um, is conceptual. Um, Little Feet Sail in Shoes is conceptual. You know, even w- one of our records, Whale Music, is conceptual in the sense that the themes in it are very, very strong. And I think sort of the life the life cycle that's kind of addressed is is really strong. It's simply it's simply framed like the frame exists, and the rest of it, the listener kind of imposes. Um, through their imagination, but there's enough journeying and there's enough sort of life experience in the, even, even though, even if the record is not a literally a, a concept record, it's, it's a conceptual piece of work and the reprise of Pepper, I, I think just sort of, you know, informs the intent of the creation of the album. And, 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 and it is great too, you know, how, the beautiful thing about about the way where that song is too is it speaks a lot to just the Beatles in general. But um, most bands would probably go out on that song. Like here we are, it's the we're mirroring the opening track, right? So we've brought it back and good night everybody and thanks for coming and 
it would be a great album, I think, without the last track. It would be a, an, a successful record. Um, but of course, being the exceptional band they are, you're left with a, a closing track that is, you know, it's, it's, that is a, a, a journey and an odyssey unto itself and, and as great as any album probably ever made, really. It's a cool thing that that little device, and I mean, the Beatles did it as well, albeit it, it was happenstance on uh, Abbey Road, where, you know, the end isn't the end. They come back with a little Her Majesty on the run-out groove. And then McCartney does it a lot on his solo yes. records. There'll be a, there'll be a song, uh, um, Venus and Mars jumps out at me with uh, Listen to What the Man Said. Like, great finishing track, right. you know, the wonder right. of it all, baby. And, it, and, then they come, and then he comes back with an instrumental Crossroads theme. Uh, to sort of finish it up. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's something, you know, maybe this is where the seeds were planted. You know, um, McCartney is kind of viewed as, a, a, as the more traditional um, pop songwriter, which is probably true, but he's also like, he'll fuck with you as much as any of the Beatles or any musician of his era. And he'll do things like that. He'll add little fragments of songs and, I mean, you even see that in his solo work, you know, fragments of songs within a song. You know, I always, Venus and Mars, you know, I always thought, well, what would that song be like, you know, if it was actually written out to its, you know, four and a half minute complete length, you know, more like a traditional piece of music as opposed to giving away to rock show uh, on that record. But he just decides to, he's going to screw with you. He's not going to do that. Just, you know, as you, when you expect... Um, Band on the Run's another example. Just as you're starting to really groove into a part and this sits great, he'll put you in another place. So, yeah, so we, we have to, yeah. And, I mean, and another great example is as we go down the rabbit hole of, of McCartney's songs, but uh, I mean, Uncle Albert, Albemarle yeah. Halsey, another one of those. For I mean, sure. It just, it's, it's a bunch of different songs put in a blender and it just yeah. works uh, as it does. Uh, so then we, and the other cool, uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the reprise, uh, McCartney, intentionally or not, uh, goes back to his old one, two, three, four, count in the same same sort of way he did it for uh, I Saw Her Standing huh. There all those right. years ago. Uh, and then uh, John Lennon sneaks in sort of a cheeky bye during McCartney's count in. And then it segues into with... Uh, Every aspiring acoustic guitar player, you're talking to one, uh, likes to try to play that that opening strumming uh, immediately recognizable to a day in a life. And I mean, where do you start? It's it is it, what a track. Go ahead, my friend. Well, hard to hard to put. It's it's great, and the beautiful thing about it is, geez, it's it is that it's hard to put into words. I mean, the greatest artistic artistic achievements are those that are, um, you know, uh, felt before they're understood, I think. Um, and, and this is certainly, certainly one of them. And, and, um, for me, it's always, you know, I'll just kind of put it in personal terms, but it's always just a matter of trying to, you know, hold my shit together through it because, you know, every uh, listening experience is a, is a, is an incredibly deeply affecting one. You know, I did, 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 did again, like getting back to sort of the, and I, maybe this is the reason I 
chose this record again because I have a relatively optimistic view, I think, of the world, and I'm in love with the world and fascinated by it. But even the last line, you know, John's line about I'd love to turn you on, I think kind of proves that they were really sort of trying, you know, they were trying to, you know, impart this feeling of, you know, love and beauty and and, um, unity. And, you know, even, even when they were nasty and mean, that was emerging out of the, you know, their, their, their view of the human condition, celebrating all parts of what it means to be a person, I think. And, but at the end, you know, John just wants to make you feel a little bit better. Like you want, you know, and John battled with all of that, you know, and all of the self-loathing and all of the, you know, anger and, 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 um, you know, uh, and all of the cynicism and nobody could be cynical as good as John Lennon, you know, but at, at the end of the day, he just wants to, he wants there to be a little bit of light in your place. And, and they're aware that music ab- above any art has the potential to, to bleed deeper and deeper into the veins of humanity, um, through, you know, when it's done well too. So that, you know, the, the song is this incredible journey and it, it kicks you around and, and, you know, and, and, uh, is, is deeply affecting, but the end of it, you, you you go off like a kite a little bit at the end, you know, um, feeling pretty good. I think, uh, you know, about, about having had the experience of listening to that record. I, I just think, and it is such a great example of when they were at their best of, of you, know, you had, Lennon had a song with a beginning and an end, but he didn't know what to put in the middle. McCartney had a song that had a middle, but no beginning and no end. And they knit it all together. And then the, the brilliant idea of having a 40 piece orchestra freak out, not, not, really playing a song but just playing notes from the lowest to the highest on each instrument uh i mean it's it's genius it's it's it is for a songwriter like yourself it's just got to be awe-inspiring i would think well i think inspiring really is is the is the key there you know because again like uh the beatles are really i mean i'm just gonna say the most absurd statement but um you know the beatles are really good at what they did but at the end of the day, they're kind of just four guys playing together. Like they're kind of just four pudding heads from, you know, from from the docks, <laughs> right? From hard scrabble Irish English town, you know, uh, getting getting on a jag. And what's inspiring is they were able to to to, to take what they had, not even necessarily in their musical ability, but but in their curiosity, I think, you know, and their um, devotion to each other as friends and players and out of that they were able to create something beautiful and lasting and that's where the inspiration comes i think you know musically yeah for sure you know you look at the songwriting and kind of go like okay well how did they do that and how can i do that and how can i apply that but at the end of the day it's about it's about working together and that's the lasting legacy for me i think and that's where the inspiration comes because if, if they can do it anybody can do it right so yeah, yeah, that's where that's where it's important. That part in the middle uh, is twenty four bars, and when they were piecing it together, and you can hear this if you listen to any of the you know many bootlegs or box sets, you can hear the, them building the song. They left a twenty four bar middle part, and uh, they had Mal Evans, who was one of their roadies, 
count out each bar up to 24 bars and they they increased his echo you know as as it goes through it's it's kind of neat to listen to and then at the end an alarm clock rings uh to to show that's the end of the of the bars and which was just a lovely happenstance that they decided to leave in because of course mccartney's part of the song starts with the you know woke up fell out of bed and goes through that uh and again it was a it was a 40-piece orchestra and they were given instructions by George Martin. He wrote a loose score, and it was an extended atonal crescendo that encouraged them to just improvise within sort of a defined framework. Go from lowest note in your instrument to the highest. And then they re- they recorded that three times. So you have, in essence, a 120-piece orchestra, well, if, my, if my lousy math is any good. <laughs> but again, isn't that beautiful that when you're telling the story of that song, you know, not only you're talking about well, put it this way, the, the, the contributions of some of the most elite, um, expensive um, orchestral players in London is as important in the, in the contribution of that song as a, a hairy, large, robust, small T thug, Mal Evans, who without him, right, he's, he's as important in the construct. And that's that's the Beatles' legacy, right? Like, there was kind of room for everyone in, in what they did. Um, and, yeah, and uh, so so even, like, beyond sort of, obviously, the masterful technical proficiency of George Martin and his crew and stuff there and the imagination of the guys. But it's neat that when you tell the story of this record and the story of these songs... Um, they kind of touch all bases in terms of all kinds of people being part of it. And you can search the video online. Uh, the night that they recorded the, as was the time, uh, you know, they were going to make it a happening when they recorded the orchestral freakout. And you can see video of like Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, Keith Richards, Donovan, Patty Boyd, all the sort of London cool people of the day. And then the, uh, the McCartney handed out because they wanted it to be like a party. Uh, some of the, the fiddle players had uh, gorilla paws and there was a guy wearing a penis nose and somebody with stick-on nipples and it was it, it looks like quite a, a 60s freak-out night if you ever get a chance to take a look at that. Uh, and then we get to, which you referred to earlier, that final chord. Does the the hair still stands up in the back of my neck every time I hear it? Does it for yeah, you? Yeah, it's neat to um, hear it, uh, you know, um, kind of walk, 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 uh, car washed a little bit, like cleaned up and... Um, uh, even digitally, you know, there was a time when it was a bit thinner, but now obviously they've been able to process it to make it um, a little truer and a little bit closer to the the virgin vinyl um, that would have existed in '67. But yeah, it's great. It's great. It's a profound. It's a profound chord. Yeah, it's, a, it's an E major chord played simultaneously by a Lennon McCartney star and Mal Evans. There you go. The aforementioned you go. Uh, small teeth. And George Martin on a harmonium, they all hit the E major chord at the same time. And uh, then they pushed up the fader on the uh, on the pot to, to get every last little bit of sound of the piano dying out. If you listen closely, if you push the volume up on whatever device you're listening it to on, uh, you can hear a chair squeak and you hear some music, uh, sheet music, huh. I assume, falling to the floor as they just <laughs> hammer it right up to get that. Um so that's the end of the album. The other thing that I think is fantastic are the Ringo drum fills yep. Yep. on A Day in a Life. Sure are. And, and, 
And I had to ask you, I know uh, the late, great Neil Pert, you wrote a lovely tribute to Neil uh, after he died. And he was not a Ringo Starr guy. And no. you said you always tried to convince him <laughs> that he was wrong. How did you try to do it? I think Ringo's a spectacular drummer for yeah, the Beatles. Of course. And that's what you say. That's always, that's the argument, right? It's like, because Neil said at one point, you know, yo, the Beatles would have been better, you know, if they had a better drummer. It's like, how is that, how is that even possible? Like how, <laughs> you know, um, it, to me, it's, it's a little bit of a, but then, you know, silly argument. But then again, if, you know, one of the masterful drummers of in history is telling you that you also, you know, you kind of have to, uh, to weigh his words with respect to, um, you know, uh, yeah, the, but yeah, there's a, that's a great, that's a great, great drum, drum, uh, record for Ringo. I think he's really, really strong on it and, and, um, buoyant too, right? Like he was, you know, you forget as well that, you know, just in terms of r even rhythm section and the, pro the, it's probable that McCartney probably made Ringo a better drummer than maybe he was, you know, supportive player, but also, McCartney was able to do all those all those crazy runs and be really he was able to wander as a bass player because Ringo was holding it down right Ringo was really you know really calmy about it like he he was he was the, all about the collective right and served the song too and you know contributed uh, in, in his own way for sure and there has to be room for for somebody to do that you know uh not everybody can be dancing over the tracks. Like somebody has to be laying it down. But yeah, no, his uh, he's his drumming is fantastic on this record. And then the cover uh, shot on Thursday, March thirtieth, sixty seven. It was prior to a late night recording session at Abbey Road, and they. Uh, I just mentioned this. I, I lived in London for nine years, and my route from where we lived up to the King's Road. We lived in uh, Battersea. And you walk up through Chelsea, uh, past all the rich homes to get to the King's Road. And I used to walk up Flood Street. And at number 111 Flood Street, Chelsea Manor Studios, which is where the cover for Sgt. Pepper's was shot. And I would walk by that every time on my way and look and go, wow, wouldn't that have been a night to have been there? Just walk past looking at that. And the nice story... I, which is uh, Paul McCartney relates in in uh, his book that he did with uh, Barry Miles. They finished it off, uh, mixed it, got an acetate cut for them at Abbey Road Studios, went over to Mama Cass's flat in Chelsea, which was just off the King's Road, and uh, we're sitting around smoking weed or hanging out or whatever you did in London back then. And at dawn, they opened the windows of uh, her flat, put speakers up on the balcony and crank the album up so the whole neighborhood could hear it. And uh, what a, a lovely story. And as, as the story is related by Neil Aspinall, who was a longtime Beatles confidant and associate, you could see all the windows open. Everybody knew who it was. And there was just this lovely moment of the first time the world, that part of the world, got to hear Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, why? Your closing thoughts what does this album mean to you, Dave? Uh, well, you know, for where where I am now, I think in sort of my life as a music fan and as a listener, it's um, you know, reliable. It's a reliable go to, um, you know, classic. Really, it's not you know, and 
it's, it's, it's there, you know, it's like an old friend kind of, you know, it's there, there when I need it. Um, and I'll cycle off it too and, and listen to other stuff and go different ways, just in terms of being a Beatles fan. But, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it doesn't, it's never disappointed me, this record. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you about it. Thank you so much. It's been great. It's been great to, you know, spend our time <laughs> in this time talking about, about, about this band. Because, like I said, it sort of, I think, reminds us of our power and what we can do when we're, we're together and we, yeah, to, uh, try to achieve the best of what we can achieve. So thanks, Romy. It's really, been really fun for me. All right. So you can find out what Dave is up to by visiting reostatics.ca. That's the band website. Dave is on Twitter with the handle HockeyEsque. That's uh, the word hockey and then E-S-Q-U-E. That's his Twitter handle. And do take a look at what the newspaper that he's involved with is up to. Subscribe if you live in the Toronto area. It's a great eclectic read. Uh, Dave is the editor-in-chief and the chairman of the board of this great entrepreneurial venture, the West End Phoenix. Their website is westendphoenix.com. That is it for me for now. Join me for episode four, out soon. Jane Gowan, front woman of the indie band The Real Shade, will dive into Abbey Road track by track. That is next time on The Walrus with Paul. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Take me Can we just have a little less guitar in here for a little less? The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. <laughs>